person. And whatever the worst sin is, I'm far, far removed from it. Right? Um, so when we talk about the greatest command, we're talking about love. It's also interesting to talk about and think about what the, the greatest violation of that commandment is. The greatest evil. And that's interesting when you talk about sin. Uh, it kind of grows and changes as we get older. I've noticed that. But uh, if you look at little kids in Sunday school, if you ask them, you know, what sin is, kind of what are the standard answers? Lying, stealing, hitting my brother, not cleaning up my room when my parents tell me. That's kind of the world they live in. Uh, you get into high school and you ask them, high schoolers, what sin is. And they may say, I mean, I know when I was a high school student, there was three sins. There was only three. Sex, dr- drinking, and drugs. Everything else was pretty much legal in my mind. And uh, they get older and it changes even more and we begin to see the horror and evil in the world and you think of things like murder and rape and incest and greed and those kind of things. Uh, maybe you come to a point as a mature believer and you start to see that those outward things are not even the real sins. You start to see the inward character that is behind all that. And so a lot of times mature believers will name things like pride, selfishness, fear. Those are the things that... Uh, are the great sins. But I would like to suggest this morning that none of those, as as horrible as they all are, none of those are really the truly great evil in the world. And uh, the reality is that the greatest sin, the most horrible thing that we can do, is something that probably all of us, in fact, I would venture to say all of us, are guilty of on a regular basis. And so we want to be aware of that and see how it interferes with what God really wants to do in our life. So that's what we'll get to. But first, we do want to look at this topic of love. Uh, we're going through John chapter 15 painfully slow. <laughs> if you're the kind of person who likes to you know, push along, I'm sorry that we're kind of taking a leisurely journey through John chapter 15. But this morning, we're going to look at two whole verses. Yeah, we're just flying along. Verses 9 and 10. Uh, So let me read those. I have loved you even as the Father has loved me. Remain in my love. When you obey my commandments, you remain in my love, just as I obey my Father's commandments and remain in his love. And of course, this whole passage, Jesus is talking about this concept of abiding. And to do that, he's used this great illustration of the vine and the branches. And uh, it's a great picture of what this abiding relationship looks like in terms of Jesus and the Father being the gardener and the vine who supplies all that's necessary for us to be fruitful. And on the other end, this idea that we do produce fruit in our life, that our life has something that comes out of it that's good and honoring to God, uh, that it's not actually a work we do, but it's that a, a work that God does through us as he produces this fruit in and through our life. And as good as this picture, as great as this image is, it does have, like all great illustrations, it does have some drawbacks and shortcomings. And uh, Jesus kind of comes back to the heart of the matter and he says plainly without picture or illustration more directly what this abiding is. And while the vine and the branches is a great picture of sap flowing and, you know, grapes popping out and all that kind of good biology stuff and botany stuff, there's kind of a impersonal touch to it. And so Jesus comes back and he says in verse 9, he he brings it back to the heart of the whole thing. And he says, look, in the same way that the Father has loved me, 
I have loved you. And when we talk about abiding, he says, I want you to abide or remain in my love. And so when we think about abiding, it's not just a mechanical process where we somehow, like robots, uh, you know, or like, a, like a, uh, an electrical appliance, plug into the power, and that power impersonally flows through us and makes us buzz and tick and whirl and wing, like most electrical things. It's not like that. Jesus says the power is not impersonal, but it's extremely personal. It is, in fact, the very love that the Father has given me. So we want to talk about what it means to abide in God's love and uh, what, that, what that is. And Jesus uh, starts off by saying that, that uh, the measure or extent of this abiding love, the, the standard of it, is simply the love that the Father has for the Son. Now, to me, you know, as a, as a preacher, put yourself in my shoes for a minute. How do you talk about God of the universe as a father loving Jesus as the son of all eternity as his son? How do you talk about that? Well, I don't know, really. So I'll give it a shot. But understand that whatever I say, his love is infinitely vaster and greater than that. The father's love for the son. How did God the father love Jesus? Uh... We know that God the Father, God has existed in this triune relationship throughout all eternity. Uh, The idea of sonship didn't occur to God after he created Adam and Eve. And they had children to go, hey, you know, that kid thing kind of works. I think I'll borrow that. I think I'll start talking about myself as a father and a son. Wrong. And it's funny how sometimes we kind of get that impression that Jesus borrowed. In fact, I've read commentators who have, who have said it in those very terms that God borrowed language from us to explain himself. Well, that's nuts, okay? That's just nuts. God did not borrow anything from us to explain himself. In fact, he created all things to express and explain himself. So in the father-son relationship, it is a picture or a pattern of something much greater that's true in Christ. Just like the, the grapevine and the great branches is a picture and a pattern that's something much greater in God. Okay, God uses that illustration because it was first true in Him. Uh, so, so God has always been a father to Jesus, and they've always existed in this father-son relationship. Um, now, the problem for us is that none of us have experienced perfect fatherhood. In fact, I can speak from experience as a father that I've been anything but the perfect model of a father. Okay, But let's put it in this term. I want you to think for a moment, even though none of us have experienced it, none of us have have done it perfectly, I think all of us could say that we have some idea of what we wish our Father was. Uh, Of things that our Father has done that have blessed us and we appreciate a great deal. And those things that, that, that maybe they didn't do so well that we recognize should have been true in that relationship. Things that we want our Father to be. It was great. Kara yesterday gave me a great illustration unknowingly, of, uh, of how I haven't always met her expectations as a father. I know it's hard to imagine. But uh, when she was a little girl, I don't even remember how old, grade school age, uh, we lived kind of in a mountainous area, and our kids had free reign over thousands of acres of forest. And they would just wander off all the time. It was a great place to live. And they were off on some journey exploring something, and um, they found this stray, kind of wild stray cat and uh, they had this brilliant idea that they were going to kind of love this cat and help it out or whatever. Well, this crazy, demented cat attacked Kara and bit her quite viciously on the arm. Well, at her young age, and 
it was, it was about dark, and the whole, the whole thing just kind of traumatized Kara. And uh, she's bleeding, and this cat bite, you know, is in her arms, puncture wounds, and so she was afraid and panicked. And her little friend with her, she said, go get my parents, go get my parents. So instead of the two of them running to the house to get care, Kara just stayed there, paralyzed, out in the dark, waiting for this vicious t- cat to return and, and attack her again. And her friend runs up to the house and says, Kara's been bit by a cat. Now I'm thinking, you know, if it's a dog, if it's a coyote, if it's a lion, but, you know, a cat. <laughs> and I said, we, I don't remember this, but apparently I said, well, where's Kara? Well, Kara's down there in the dark, uh, panicked, frightened, and afraid. And she told me yesterday that she wanted, she wanted us as her parents, she wanted me as her dad to come and rescue her. She wanted us to come and make it all better and take her back to the house and take care of her and rescue and protect her. But instead we said, well, just tell her to come home. <laughs> Talk about just crushing the whole thing. Well, well, we all have this idea of what ideal fatherhood is. And as much as our parents, as our families, our fathers may have fallen short of that, we all long for and know deep down inside what that looks like. We all have a sense of uh, wanting to be the delight of our parents' eyes, wanting to be treasured and valued as a most loved and beloved child uh, in whom our parents take great delight and joy. Uh, we long as children, even into adulthood, to have our parents be proud of us and be pleased in our life. And I know people who, you know, struggle their whole life until they're 70 or 80 years old dealing with the fact that they've never been able to be a pleasing child. And it's painful. Well, we all sense that those things are true. We all want, we all want our parents to some extent take care of us, to protect us. Uh, we hope and pray that our parents have a, leave for us a good inheritance and send us to college and, you know, kind of uh, bless us, right? Uh, those are some of the things we look to from our parents. And it's interesting, when you look at God the Father and His relationship with the Son, God the Father was all those things to Jesus. One of the most powerful pictures early in the Gospels is when Jesus is being baptized, remember, and He comes up out of the water and the dove comes down in the form of the Spirit. And God the Father says what? Behold my dearly loved Son, in whom I delight, in whom I find great joy, in whom I am well pleased. Uh, and the thing is, Jesus hadn't even done anything yet. Had, it hasn't like he'd been ministering for three years. He just got it started. And God says, I love my son. He brings me great delight and joy. And we long for that in a parent. And that's the kind of father that God the Father was to Jesus. Uh, it talks in the Gospels that the Father has given Jesus his glory, that he will glorify the Son. Uh, Jesus talks about it himself in John that, uh, it's time for my moment of glory, speaking of the cross and the resurrection. Uh, we, we know that we are joint heirs of the rich inheritance that Jesus has been given. All that the Father possesses and owns, all of it, he's given to the Son. And we share that inheritance with him as his children. All of those things, whatever it is, and that's just the, the, you know, the drop in the bucket of what God the Father is in his love relationship with the Son. Uh, in terms of fellowship and communion throughout all eternity, they share it and communion, fellowship together in the deepest possible kind of relationship. 
That's the kind of measure, standard of love that Jesus is talking about here. So he's not talking about a human kind of love. He's not talking about a love that's limited. He's certainly not talking about a love that's conditioned. He's talking about an unconditional, unending love that was represented in the Father's love towards him as a son. Um, And then Jesus says, In the same way that the Father has loved me, to the extent and scope and capacity that the Father has loved me, I have loved you. Uh, This is mind-boggling. To me, mind-boggling truth. And it's interesting, the, the verb that Jesus used here is not an ongoing present tense verb. It's not the idea that I am loving you now, although certainly Jesus was. But it really is the idea of a finished, completed action. That I have completely and totally loved you in its entirety. And certainly when Jesus speaks of this, he's thinking about all the events that are about to transpire on the cross. As Jesus' complete and perfect fulfillment of God the Father's love toward his world. Jesus says, I have loved you to the full and same extent that the Father has loved me. Um, You know, part of the problem is that because we can't really understand how much the Father loves the Son, it's really impossible for us to grasp how much Jesus loves us. But the reality is that it is infinite, it is vast, it is unending. And I know for me personally, one of the things I run into is that I know I'm so unworthy of that love. And oftentimes I see my sins and my mistakes and my faults and my shortcomings, and I am convinced that God must love like I would love. And how would I love? Well, I'll tell you how I love. When people get on the wrong side of me, I don't stop loving them, but I don't love them very much, right? Because God told me I'm not supposed to hate people, so I don't actually want to murder them. But I wouldn't mind if somebody else did, right? <laughs> you know, it's like, hmm, that would be sad. <laughs> I'll pray for them. Uh, you know, I don't love like God loves. I am very conditional in my love. My love is based very much, sad to say, and I think human love is based very much on the object that we're loving. If it's a good person, if it's lovely, if it does the right things, if it responds in the right way, I will love it more. If it doesn't meet my expectations, if they don't do what I say, if they give me a hard time, I will love them less. And so we we apply that same, same kind of thinking to God's love for us. We put it like this, as I love others, so Jesus loves me. Right? Isn't that oftentimes how we think? Maybe not consciously, but in reality, it's hard for us to imagine God could love differently. And so when we look at our life and we mess up, we think, you know, I've just, man, I've just turned the notch down, the heat down on God's love for me. You know, God was loving me a lot because I was praying really good and I was like all fired up for God. And then I went out and did something stupid and I blew it. And I'll bet God doesn't love me as much anymore. Now, I don't think we consciously think those things. Maybe we do. But in terms of our experience, that's oftentimes how we experience love, isn't it? We're uncertain of God's love. And we can't imagine a love that is never affected by our actions or behavior. And the reason is, we don't understand that God's love is based totally 100% on His character and nature, not on my response or behavior. 
God's love is about His perfect character and goodness. Uh, Psalms, uh, Psalms 119.68 says this, um, You are good and you do only good. You are good and you do only good. Um, God is incapable of doing anything but good. And He cannot diminish His love toward us. Not only toward us, but really towards the whole world. Uh, honestly, don't you kind of think that God has a different kind... Well, He does, in a sense, have a different kind of love relationship with you because His relationship with you is more full. But do you know that God's love for the unsaved neighbor, the unsaved person, the evil murderer in prison, His love is no less or no smaller for that person than it is for you. It is no less or no smaller than the Father's love for the Son. Because that is His nature. That is His character. And that's the basis of His love. So, that's how Jesus loves us. Unconditionally, perfectly, completely, and finished. Another great thing about this idea of Jesus' love being finished means He's already given it to us all. He can't take any of it back. Because I love in the present tense, my love is never fully completed. So, on any given day, I can measure it out and, and, you know, as I see fit, right? God is, Jesus and God have already given us the full measure of it all. Completed. Fully. So it's never dependent on us. Well, Jesus says of that, He says, As the Father has loved me, so in the same way, to the same measure, extending capacity, I have loved you. And then he says, I want you to abide in that love. I want you to live in that love. Well, what is that all about? What does that mean? Well, uh, the best way I can explain it, and this may be very poor and limited, uh, but think of it in this way. We all live in a universe with very clear laws and principles and rules that govern it. We live in a physical world governed by the rules and principles of physics and gravity. And uh, I know that world well. And in this world, I tend to follow those rules quite well. Uh, Not because I choose to, but because that's just the way the world operates. For example, I have found it really works better if I go up and down, if I'm on the second floor, like in this room. I would suggest when you go down, you use the stairs. Okay, There's just certain laws of physics that work better than if you jump out the window. Now, you're free to jump out the window, but I've noticed Sunday after Sunday, nobody does that, right? We all tend to use the laws of physics. We honor those, and we live within the parameters and confines of that. Um, All of us are pretty well stuck to the whole rule of gravity thing. You know, I appreciate that nobody's just floating here this morning, because it's really distracting. You know, you're always sitting there, and somebody's like popping up in the sky, kind of the Mary Poppins laughing thing. It's just distracting, right? We live by this force of gravity and rules in physics, right? It is the universe we live in. But I would suggest that when when Jesus talks about abiding in love, he's talking about a whole other universe or existence or reality that we can also live in, that we can also be a part of. Uh, It's fun. I didn't didn't know this, but we use the word reality a lot. And it can be defined this way. Reality is a type of existence, an existence or universe either connected with or independent from other kinds. Uh, I think Jesus is saying here that there is the physical world, but there is also a world or a kingdom or universe 
that is dominated and overpowered by not the forces of physics, but the forces of God's love. And that to live in that is to live and operate and conduct our lives by those rules and principles. To believe and to live and to practice life in a way that all of our life, just like it's surrounded every day by gravity, that never changes. Aren't you glad that, you know, if you get up in the morning you feel kind of cranky and grouchy, that, like, gravity's not heavier? (laughs) Some days it feels that way. You get out of bed, it's like, man, I think somebody cranked up the gravity. You ever feel that way? (laughs) But really it doesn't, right? It stays constant. It never changes. Whether you feel good or feel bad, whether you've been a good person or a bad person, gravity doesn't change. Well, I'm suggesting that to abide in God's love is to live in a universe governed by God's love that never changes. That like the forces of gravity pulls you to this earth in the same way the forces of God's love pulls you to himself continually, constantly, regardless of anything you do, think, or say. God's love is constant. And it is perfect. And it is being poured out upon you every second you live. That's this universe that we live in. The problem is that most of us aren't aware of that universe and we don't operate in it. Uh, we don't abide in that by that principle. I find myself mostly abiding by a principle that says, well, God may or may not love, love me depending on how good of a Christian I am. To make matters worse, to complicate things even further, is that in my experience, the world just isn't dripping with love, Right? The world that I live in and the the experience I have is not one where I feel terribly loved by God quite often, quite honestly. Uh, I get up in the morning and I stub my toe and it hurts. I live in a world where bad things happen all the time. I live in a world where, uh, you know, I I don't have millions of dollars in my checking account. And I'm thinking, if God really loved me, things would be different in my circumstances, right? Uh, I don't always get my way. And somehow I think that has something to do with God's love. Right? Uh, Don't we think that? I'm not getting my way. God must not really love me. Things go wrong in my life. God must not really be loving me. And so we begin to doubt and question the reality of God's love and its constancy. And so we don't live as if it's absolutely 100% true and real in our life. We don't pray as if it's absolutely 100% true and real in the universe. We pray as if God is kind of sneaky, tricky. And we pray and it's like God's up there going, eh, let's see, let me think about that request. You know, I think you've been kind of a moron lately. No, I'm not going to do that for you, right? And so we don't even ask. We don't trust, we don't seek, we don't come to God expecting his love and goodness. Or we can play it this way. You know, we play this kind of humility thing. Well, I don't want to impose on God. You know, I don't want to ask him for his love because, like, you know, I don't want to be Grangey. See, we're real tight. I don't want to be Grangey on God, right? Because maybe he'll run out of love or maybe he's feeling a little stingy today and he doesn't want to dish out. So we don't live in this principle of a God who has infinite, unending, and boundless love that he longs and wants to pour out on us. We don't want to impose on God. We don't want to bother him, right? Because his love isn't that kind of love. You know, he lives far away. He never comes and visits. He's really probably not that concerned about my life. Uh, How many times do you find yourself only praying 
I mean, praying all out when like your life is on the line. But like if it's something minor and little, well, I can figure it out. I don't want to bother God. I love I love the story where Elisha's out and his prophets, his little band of prophets, are out building a little meeting room down by the Jordan River, and the guy's uh, hacking away at a tree, and his axe head flies off into the Jordan River. You remember that story? And he comes to him and says, oh no, it's a borrowed axe, what am I going to do? And Elisha says, yeah, that is a bummer, you know, I don't know, maybe we could take an offering or something. <laughs> no! He says, well, where did it fall? And he goes out there and he throws a stick and the axe head flows to the surface and he gets his axe head. Does God care about the little things in our life? Does God love us in the tiniest details of our life and our world? Absolutely. But how many of us, when we lose our axe head, just go out and buy another axe, right? Uh, we solve it ourselves. We figure it out. We don't stop and say, God, the God who, of infinite love and goodness, by, by your character, by who you are as God, I come to you and ask you to help me with these little things, these little day-to-day things in my life. See, that's abiding, that's living in this reality that we are convinced is true and real. Living in this alternative universe, if you will, where God's love is like the gravity of this, of this universe, where it is constant and dependable and is as certain as the sun coming up every morning. Um, do we believe it with all our heart? Um, you know, circumstances don't always lead to that. Oftentimes our feelings don't confirm it. Don't confuse circumstances and our feelings with belief. The reality is you can feel like God doesn't love you and you can look around you and you can see circumstances that don't confirm that. You can still believe it's true. Jesus had to do that. Think about this. Jesus got sent by his Father. By the way, Jesus says, I have loved you like the Father has loved me. Uh, if you were to look at Jesus' life on earth, that may not be such a good thing. You know, God sent him from the luxuries and comfort and power of heaven to be a poor carpenter on earth. Like, well, God, you don't have to love me quite like that, right? And uh, he lived and grew up in a very normal, average, everyday life where he suffered and dealt with all the setbacks and difficulties of life with the goal and purpose of suffering and dying on a cross. Okay, now, where's the love in that? Um, well, it was God's loving plan, and Jesus understood it. But if Jesus were to look at... If Jesus, at John chapter 15, were to look at his life and the impending doom of the cross. And look at that circumstance, and and we know that Jesus didn't feel great about this. We know he prayed that the Father would take this cup away. We know that Jesus wasn't feeling all warm and fuzzy at this point in his life. He was feeling the dread and terror of taking on the sin of the world. The awfulness of it. But never did Jesus doubt the Father's love. He was absolutely certain that he could trust his life into the Father's hands. And that though he would die and would be buried and banished to darkness, that the Father in his goodness would bring him back to life. He never doubted the Father's love. And see, that's what we've got to do. We've got to live in a reality where we know no matter how bad the circumstances are, no matter how dark it seems, no matter how difficult, we can go to God and trust him to love us, to entrust our life into his hands. Uh, We'll talk about this uh, in the following week, but at the end of this passage, Jesus says, You didn't choose me, I chose and appointed you to go and produce lasting fruit so that the Father will give you whatever you ask for using my name. 
The reality is most of us have never experienced the power of that verse, the power of that kind of praying, because we just simply don't believe God is really that good. We just don't have the confidence to ask the kind of things that God really wants to do in our life. I know that's true for me. I'll speak for myself. Uh, I don't think I've begun to see what God wants to do if we really believed and lived in a universe where He loves perfectly and unendingly. Um, So we live in these two realities, and we've got to believe with all of our heart that it's true. Um, That while we live in this wicked and evil and sinful world, we live in a world where God has given us freedom to make choices, and we have chosen badly, and we must live with the consequence of those choices. That that is not the same reality or universe as the universe controlled by God's love. There is a place where God's love reigns and rules, and in, that, in the end, that kingdom will win. And someday we will see all that God has done, and it will make perfect sense, and we'll know His love. Uh, but we've got to believe with all of our heart that it's true and real. We've got to believe that God's love toward us is unending and perfect. Uh, and we need to live uh, daily in the light of that reality. Now, let me give you a practical example in my own life of how it doesn't work or how I struggle with it. It's easy to talk about it. It's easy to say. It's easy to affirm. Yeah, you know, I think that's right. I think God does love me. But the reality is it kind of works like this. Uh, We go out from here. We go out from reading our Bible. We get all charged up. we We feel God's love. We praise and worship Him and we have this wonderful feeling. And we go out and real world kicks us in the, in the face, right? And uh, it's, it's hard. Uh, last, last July, I got kicked pretty hard right in the face by life. We had gone back to the States, and I thought I had worked out all of our budget for the foundation, the Family Connection Foundation, kind of the outreach arm of the church. And I thought things were pretty well under control. And I'm in the States, and towards the end of July, I get this email uh, that says... You know, we spent 400,000 baht this month, which is a lot of money. It's like 11,000 U.S. dollars. And we don't have any money left. And I just freaked out. I mean, I just panicked. I thought, oh, my goodness. And we didn't have any money in, in the States, and, you know, we don't have any big organizations. CCF as a church supports the foundation with about 30,000 baht a month. 30,000, 400,000. It's a slight gap there in between. <laughs> You know, $1,000, $11,000. We're just $10,000 a month short. And I thought, oh my goodness, this this is not going to work. I thought, we can't do this. Even if God performs some huge miracle and gives us $10,000 for this month, what about next month? And the month after that, and the month after that, and I just freaked out. And I just thought, this isn't going to work. We can't do this. And I'm seriously thinking, you know, how are we going to close the schools? How are we going to send all the kids home? Uh, We can't do this. And in the midst of this crisis, and I'm praying, and I'm not praying, I'm praying a lot, but I'm not praying a lot of prayers of faith. I'm not praying in Jesus' name that He's going to do whatever I ask. I'm praying like, God, get me out of this mess. Okay? And God spoke to me and said, Don't you know that I love those kids? And I love, uh, I love you, and I'm going to show and display my love to the world. And amazingly, month after month, only did August go by, we made it. 
September went by, October, November, December. Now we're in January. We haven't gone broke yet. And it's been amazing. Miraculously, God has brought in unbelievable funds from sources I don't even know. Because I'm talented? No. Because I have great faith? Not at all. Because God's good? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because He's good. And uh, I didn't run, which is the only thing that uh, resembled faith in the whole thing. <laughs> okay, the tiniest little mustard seed. I didn't run. Okay. Well, now getting back to the, the we started with the, the great sin of the world. Jesus says, um, as the fathers love me, so I love you. Abide and remain in that love. And then he says, when you obey my commandments, you abide in my love. Just as I obey my father's commandments and remain in his love. Um, for a lot of us, this has been, this is kind of a disconnect from this whole love thing. It's like we understand the love. We want God to love us. We, we want to walk in that place where he's pouring out his love and goodness in our life. Then this whole keeping the commands and following the law, it just seems to like grind against that. And it's confusing. What does it mean to... What is this whole thing about obedience? What is this whole thing about, you know, if you obey my commands? It's like so... And to make matters even worse, it's, it kind of sounds like this. It sounds like... My love is unending, unconditional, perfect. You can't change it. But if you don't follow my commands, watch out. Well, it seems like that's kind of contradictory, right? It's like, well, how can God's love be unconditional and not depend on anything I do, but God wants me to keep all his rules? Well, it seems kind of just lame, right? Well, let's look at this. And to, to look at it, maybe it would be helpful to kind of look at it in reverse. Um, what is, what is disobedience and God's abiding in love? How does that fit? If we are disobedient, how are we not abiding in love? First of all, I think it's important to know that nothing ever changes God's love. Because God's love toward you is no different than God's love toward the worst un, unsaved sinner. Okay, nothing changes God's action toward us, God's heart toward us the outflowing of his good goodness and goodwill toward us. But on our end, our experience of that love can be greatly affected by how we live. That's why Jesus commands, it's an imperative verb, it's a command verb, to abide in his love. Okay, it's not that God's love changes, but our experience, our living in it, is very much affected by us, by our actions and our behavior and our attitudes. Um, and there is a way to, to disobey God and step outside of that reality of God's love. Well, how does that do that? Where, where does that come from? Well, I really believe that, that the greatest sin and uh, the connection between obedience, disobedience, loving, and, and not being in God's love is simply this. It's the sin of unbelief. The greatest sin ever, the sin that is the mother of all sins, it is that the root of every evil is unbelief. Uh, Andrew, Murray, Andrew Murray puts it this way. He says, God grant that we may get this spiritual quickening and that we may come to see that it is by our unbelief that we have prevented God from doing his work in us. Unbelief is the mother of disobedience. 
And of all my sins and shortcomings, my temper, my pride, my unlovingness, my worldliness, my sin of every kind. You see, this is how it works. When we don't believe in God's love, when we don't fully believe in the complete extent of God's love and goodness, it will always lead to disobedience. You go back to uh, Genesis chapter 3 in the Garden of Eden. And uh, God had created lovingly this wonderful place for Adam and Eve to live and to be and exist. And he'd put the one tree in the garden that they could not eat. And the serpent comes to tempt them. And he says the serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals. One day he asked the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from the fruit of the tree, of any of the trees in the garden? And she said, Well, of course we may eat from the trees in the garden. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we're not allowed to eat. God said, you must not eat it or even touch it, which God didn't actually say, or you will die. The serpent said, you won't die. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it. And you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. And then it says in verse 6, the woman was convinced. What was she convinced of? Well, basically, Satan is saying this. He's saying, look, God is not really good. God is not really loving you all out. He's holding back on you. He knows that this thing is going to make you more powerful and going to make you more like him. And God is holding that back on you. And in not so many words, Satan is weaving this web of doubt in the love and goodness of God. And it says the woman was convinced. And here's the deal. If you're not convinced God is absolutely loving and good, and that God absolutely wants to give you every good thing, that God wants to bless you overwhelmingly with every good thing you could possibly hold and contain in your life. If instead you think, well, God's pretty good and He's given me a lot of good things, but there are some good things that God is holding out on. And he doesn't want you to have those things because he knows that would make you too happy. If you believe that, what are you going to do? Well, if God's not giving it to me all, if there's more out there, if there's more good things out there and God's not going to give it to me, then guess what? i got to go get it on my own, right? It's in my own hands to go take care of that. And that's exactly what Adam and Eve did. God is holding out. He's not truly good. There is something good and better that He has withheld from us. And if we want it, we've got to go get it ourselves. You see, their ultimate sin, the first sin, was not that they ate, but that they didn't believe in God's goodness. And because they did not believe in God's goodness, they rebelled and turned their back on God, and they took things into their own hands. And it's been that way ever since. The same thing is true in our life. Every sin you commit, every temptation in your life is ultimately asking that question. Is God good? Is God withholding this thing from you because He doesn't want you to be happy? Because He doesn't want you to have pleasure and joy? I I know uh, that's the struggle of sin. You know, God's not going to give me what I know I need to be happy. God couldn't possibly love me enough to take care of that need in my life. So it's in my own hands. 
And you see, when we doubt, when we don't abide in God's love, when we don't live in that universe, we don't live by its principles. It's as, it's as if we ignore gravity and we start taking matters into our own hands. We start jumping out of windows instead of taking the stairs. We start trying to walk through doors instead of opening the doors. And it's because we can't do that, we try kicking the door down, right? And we demand our own way. That is the greatest sin. You know, it leads to much worse. And certainly I'm not saying that rape and murder and horrible sins are not in their consequences terrible. But all of those things come back to one single root. And it's the sin of unbelief. It's doubting God's love and goodness. And the reality is that in our own life, in my own life, day after day after day, I have to wrestle with, do I really believe in God's goodness or do I doubt it? Do I have absolute confidence that God is going to take care of me in spite of how circumstances look? Can I pray to Him and trust Him to do all the good and best things in my life? Or am I going to ditch God on this one and, and take care of it myself? Do we really believe in God's goodness? Do we live under the power and principle of that truth? That's what it means to walk in obedience. Just like we follow the physical laws of this world, the idea is that we, if we live in the, and abide in God's love, we live by its principles. We live by its natural laws. And we we put ourselves under its constraints and we follow its laws. We'll look later. Specifically, Jesus says, my commandment is that you love each other and we'll see how all that works out. Um, Let me say one more thing about obedience. Um, Obedience in this respect is a good thing. Obedience in the context of our love relationship with God is a good thing. It is a vital thing. And it is a natural outcome of believing that God's plan is good, right? Uh, if we, if God commands us to do something, we know it's a good thing and we do it. Um, there is another kind of obedience, though, that Christians practice a lot. I practice a lot, and it's obedience that's uh, compliance to a set of rules apart from a love relationship with the Father. Okay, the Pharisees were doing this. The Pharisees thought they were being obedient because they were compliant to a set of rules, but they had no love relationship with the Father. That's not what Jesus is talking about. And that kind of obedience does not lead to love. It leads to death. It leads to legalism. It leads to... Because it's all about... It's not about God's love and goodness. It's about earning the right to be loved. It's not about God loving us no matter what. It's about being good enough to merit God's love and goodness. And that's not what Jesus is talking about here. Jesus said, As the Father has loved me, I have loved you. Abide in that love. Those who obey my commands are are abiding in that love, just as I obey my Father's commandments and remain in His love. Uh, Jesus did not prescribe to some set of rules but he perfectly did everything the Father told him to do because of his love for the Father, because of his devotion and confidence in the Father's love and goodness. As we close this morning, what do we do with doubt in our own life? Like all sins, it's really quite simple. 
first of all, we need to admit it. We need to admit that there are often times in our life when we're not really confident in believing in God's love. Uh, if that's true, and we can admit that as a part of our life, we need to confess it as sin. Uh, the reality is, my attitude in the past oftentimes is that, well, you know, I know I have some doubt in my life, but I'm pretty much a good person, right? And we don't see where that doubt ends. Now, if I was addicted to internet pornography, I'd lose my job and it should be back to, you know, do 10 years of counseling in some kind of sex addiction program. And we would take that sin seriously. And we should. But do we take seriously the sin of unbelief? Of doubting God's love and goodness? Of doubting His promises? It all goes downhill from there. So we've got to take it seriously. And we confess it. And we repent. We turn away from it. And the reality is, you can't make yourself believe. Will, willing something never creates faith. And so, if we know that's true in our life, we have to go to the Father and say, Father, I, I don't have the faith. It has to come from you. And I ask that you would give me faith. That you would help me see and know and understand how good your love is so that I could be confident so that I could trust it and then as much as possible day by day when I see doubt coming in when I sense those question marks of God's love and character that I stop that minute and I stand against that as a sin as serious as any other sin and I confess it and I seek God's help to overcome that doubt let's pray Father, I do pray that you would, uh, by your Spirit, show us where we are, where we're breaking your heart because we doubt your character. Day by day, in the very small and sometimes invisible, insignificant ways that seem quite harmless. We are undermining faith. We are casting great doubt on all your promises in your word. And we're reducing your love to something very human. Very much like our limited and finite love. Instead of believing in the grand and infinite and extraordinary love of a God who is without limit or end. Who loved his son for all eternity perfectly and abundantly, and who now has turned that love toward us. Lord God, give us a sense of how that breaks your heart and how it grieves you when you have so longed and so desired to pour out into us your love and goodness. And we can't receive it because we don't believe it's real. And we've made you into something much less than God because we don't really understand who you are. Father, forgive us of such terrible sins against you. And Lord, we want to confess from our hearts those times when we doubt your love and goodness. 
we want to confess when we've made a God in our own minds, it's nothing like the God revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. The God that was revealed as he poured out his love on the cross. Lord, we thank you that you are patient with us. That even in our sin and our doubt, you still love us. And you still long to forgive and open up our hearts and minds by faith to see and to glimpse the greatness of your love and goodness. That we can count on every promise you have made to us. That we can count on this promise that we can ask for anything in your name, in the name of Jesus, and you will do it to bring glory to yourself. Father, I pray that we would know how to live that kind of life.